0: Okay, it's time to start. I hope you've got the the, the uh, handout sheets. It's got some blanks, so you will need to um, have a pen if you hope to um, keep up with that. Um, we'd like to start by reading Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter five, which is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, which continues through chapter 6 and chapter 7, but for our purposes tonight, we're just going to read the first 20 verses in chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 1, continuing to verse 20. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth. But if the salt hath lost his savour, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle. And put it under a bushel but on a candlestick and it giveth light unto all that are in the house let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven think not that i'm come to destroy the law or the prophets i'm not come to destroy but to fulfill for verily i say unto you till heaven and earth pass One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, He shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon our time of Bible study this evening. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you in prayer this evening, thanking you, first of all, for your word. Thank you that's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Uh, We thank you uh, for giving it to us, and we pray that we might be guided by it uh, this evening. Lord, our desire is uh, to uh, learn Uh, from your word and uh, Lord understand what it is uh, that you would what you want us to do and how it is that you want us to go about things and uh, so we pray that we might benefit uh, from uh, this uh, time that we set aside uh, to open the scriptures together. Uh, May it continue to equip us uh, to do every good work for we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Now last week we Learn that in our evangelistic endeavours we are going to come across different different people, different kinds of people. Many of them will be uh, of such a disposition to be hardened against the gospel, cold to the gospel, indifferent towards it, um, not concerned about their own soul. And Jesus had to deal with people like that too and it will therefore be to our advantage to, to consider how Jesus engaged with such people and understand if there's there any particular strategies that he employed. And last week we saw that it was a strategy of Jesus which he did often and repeatedly, constantly. He would, in many instances, he would disassociate himself from the false religion of the day. He did that constantly. It was a particular strategy that he had. And uh, tonight we're going to consider another strategy that he used and that is the strategy of surprising statements. The strategy of surprising statements. Many of the things that Jesus said were totally unexpected to the people who were listening. Not to him but to the people who were listening. He said things that shocked his audience, things that jolted their minds, statements that aroused people's interest. He said to Nicodemus, the most bizarre thing, um, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was stunned by that, never heard anything like that before. What does it mean? He wanted to know more. The next word out of his mouth was, how? How? How can these things be? To the Samaritan woman, Jesus said, give me to drink. Totally unexpected. No Jewish man would say such a thing to a Samaritan woman. The woman was intrigued. Why would he ask me to do that? She wanted to know more. The next word out of her mouth was how? How is it that you, being a Jew, ask... Drink of me, a woman of Samaria, though. The Samaritans and Jews don't have anything to do with each other. Next paragraph in your notes. In reaching out to people to share God's truth, Jesus frequently made surprising statements, whether in conversation with individuals or preaching a sermon. Let's take, for example, here tonight, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably, possibly his most famous sermon. In it, Jesus said many things that his audience that left his audience stunned. So much so, so much so that at the end of it, everyone was amazed. And it wasn't just a one-off. He didn't just do this in one sermon. It was that it was typical of the way that he spoke with people, people who previously had zero interest in the scriptures. For example, the publicans and the sinners. They were intrigued by the surprising things that Jesus said. They wanted to know more. The reason why people were surprised is because next paragraph, Jesus often said things that were totally opposite to what they expected. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. From the very beginning of the sermon, Jesus made a point which was a complete shock to everyone who heard it and he made the point consistently through the sermon. He taught that only his disciples were God's children. He taught that only his personal followers were members of God's kingdom. And that was a shocking statement for his listeners to hear. The sermon begins this way, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Well, this is the setting. Verse 1, he's seeing the multitude and seeing the multitude he went up into a mountain and when he was set his disciples came unto him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, now the question is who is Jesus speaking to? Who is he addressing? Who is the them? He taught them saying, who's the them? The them is the disciples. Now there's no doubt about it that the multitudes around him heard everything that Jesus was saying and that was certainly very intentional. But his teaching was directed to his disciples. Now, why do we say that? We don't say that for grammatical reasons. There's nothing in the Greek text which which would lead us to that conclusion. We say that for contextual reasons. Next paragraph, and you note. Note two important contextual considerations here. Number one, the Sermon on the Mount does not present the way of salvation to those outside of God's family. It presents the way of righteous living for those who are already in God's family. Those who are already Jesus' disciples. That's the context and that's why we understand that Jesus is directing his words to them specifically. There's a second contextual consideration here. There are future implications of the Sermon on the Mount. It's all about God's kingdom, which includes the millennial kingdom, that is the time when, in fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies to Israel, Christ returns to rule and reign upon the earth as king for a thousand years. The sermon does have future implications. However, the sermon also has present implications, for God's kingdom is also a present spiritual reality. So that's necessary to bear that in mind. But with these two things in mind, What we see here is that there's this large group of people, a multitude, gather around Jesus, listening as Jesus talks specifically to his disciples about life in God's kingdom and even that kind of arrangement in itself was a great surprise to the people. Next paragraph. The Jewish people were convinced that they were God's chosen people simply by virtue of their birth. They were the children of Abraham with whom God had made a covenant. God promised Abraham and that his descendants would be his special people forever and yet Jesus gathered this small band of followers around him and in view of the full multitude, in full view of the multitude he began to address those disciples as though, as though they alone were God's children. Now, Jesus doesn't commence his sermon by telling his disciples that the, the multitude, they're the outsiders, and only you guys are members of the kingdom. He doesn't start the sermon by saying that. But what we see here in the arrangement, here certainly implies that. He's speaking specifically to his disciples. And furthermore, as the sermon progresses, that point becomes abundantly clear. And it shocked the multitude, totally unexpected. That only these would be considered to be members of God's kingdom, not not us. Jesus begins his sermon by pronouncing blessings upon the, the poor in spirit, the humble. He says that they are the citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not the proud. And as a nation, Israel was certainly proud. In verse 5, it's only the meek that shall inherit the earth. Think future millennial kingdoms. Only the meek that shall inherit the earth. And certainly at this point in time, Israel wasn't meek. In verse 8, it's only the pure in the heart that will see God. Israel wasn't pure in heart. In verse 9, only peacemakers are the children of God. And the nation of Israel thought they were the children of God simply by birth. Verse 10, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And verse 11 and 12, it's clearly implied that it's not the nation of Israel which are the persecuted ones that Jesus has in mind here but only those who are faithful to God like, look at the text like the Old Testament prophets whom the nation of Israel persecuted yes the nation of Israel was God's God's special people but it is possible as Jesus says in verse 13 for the salt to lose its savor and to be good for nothing Yes, Israel was to be a light to the nations, but it's possible, verses 14 and 15, for the light to be hid under a bushel. Next paragraph in your notes, as the sermon progressed, how astonished the Jewish multitude was to hear Jesus saying that the Jews in general were not members of God's true kingdom, only his disciples were, only those who were his personal followers. Surely this rabbi's teaching is wrong. Surely his teaching is against the scriptures. Anticipating this objection, Jesus goes on in verse 17 and onwards to say that he hasn't come to destroy the law but to fulfill it. And then he proceeds not only to correct false teachings that had arisen out of the scriptures and wrong interpretations, he, he then goes on to beyond the letter of the law to explain the spirit of it. He said, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. But I say unto you, and he would then proceed to either correct the false teaching or to correct the legalistic interpretation. Bottom paragraph, on at least six occasions, chapter five, Jesus was implying that his interpretations of the scripture were superior to. To the traditional teachings of others. How shocked the multitudes were. How can he say such things? But Jesus continues, chapter 6. To distance himself from the religious, religious leaders like we saw last week. By condemning the their hypocritical alms giving and praying and fasting. But then he proceeds to give instruction on how to do each of those things in a way which pleases God the Father. He goes on verse 19 to teach about money verse 25 he teaches about anxiety and in so doing he shows people the tremendous difference between a life which is lived for the here and now and a life which is lived for god to avoid materialism he he urged in verse 19 lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth and to avoid anxiety he told them verse 33 seek ye first the kingdom of god and his righteousness God will take care of you. You don't need to worry. Top of the page. As we come to chapter 7. How astonished the crowds must have been to hear Jesus say that no one could presume to be a child of God simply by an accident of birth. For God must be personally sought and personally found. Verse 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. The idea of personal faith and this seeking, finding concept was a total shock to the nation of Israel who simply presumed that they were God's special people just because they were born Jews. Verses 13 and 14, he speaks about two gates people can enter. Two roads leading to two destinations. And the road to destruction is travelled by what? Many. The multitude are on the road that road. And the road to life is travelled by just a few. A few who faithfully follow Jesus. And that doesn't include those who merely profess to follow Jesus. For verse 20 tells us that it's by their fruits that they're shown to be genuine, not by their mere profession. Verse 21, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father, which is in heaven, many shall say say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then will I profess unto them, I never knew you, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus' Jewish listeners must have been shaken to their core. Their their life, their long-standing opinions were challenged. Their notions of salvation was confounded. What Jesus is saying here is that a person's eternal destiny is in his hands. And it all depends whether or not people have a personal relationship with him. Do they know him? Do I know you? Their personal destiny is based upon that fact. Do they have a personal relationship with him? Now there can be no doubt about that claim because he doubles down on it in the next couple of verses where he concludes his sermon by saying, That the difference between someone being wise in this life and safe for eternity as opposed to being foolish in this life and lost for eternity, the difference between the two is a person's response to his words. No No one else ever dared to speak in this way. The multitudes were shocked out of their complacency and presumption. No wonder, verse 28 says, it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine. For so he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This is what Jesus would do. Okay? This was part of his strategy. He would constantly make statements that surprised his listeners. They were shocked. They were intrigued. Questions would rise in their minds. They had to know more. There's this strategy of surprising statements. Okay, well, let's let's make some applications for us. We're seeking to engage people with the gospel. Let's think about our own evangelistic endeavours, and I hope we do think about that. As we seek to speak to people about the gospel and their need for salvation, we will encounter some people who are very hard-hearted. People who are ignorant, people who are indifferent, people who are not a bit concerned about the gospel, not a bit concerned about their their, uh, situation. And for obvious reasons, some of our conversations with them might often be quite short. People like that, they make it clear they do not want to hear. And they will move on or they will insist that we move on. Question... What can we say, politely and without offence, that will cause them to stop and listen, sit up and pay attention? Answer, it would be to our advantage to do what Jesus did. That is, that is to capture the attention of unbelievers with surprising statements. Surprising statements that will help them to see that the biblical message of salvation is nothing like the idea nothing like the idea that they have in their minds. And as their false ideas are challenged their interest is engaged their minds are more open to listen. So how can we (coughs) surprise People today, how can we, as it were, grab their ears and compel compel them to start to listen and to begin to inquire? Now, you might be, you might have a, you know, having having uh, had some experience in, in speaking with people about the gospel. You, you may have a, you know, a bit of a a set plan in your own minds, certain statements that you use to um, continue the conversation certain statements or questions that you've used with good effect Peter Masters in his book entitled Biblical Strategies for Witness he suggests a number of statements that we might share that will help us profitably engage in conversations with unbelievers who are hardened against the message And so uh, I've uh, gone through that chapter and gleaned six suggested surprising statements out of that book. And I'll present the points to you and develop them. Here's one that he suggests. First one, surprising statement. Christianity was never meant to make the world a better place. Christianity was never meant to make the world a better place. Peter Masters says, the next paragraph is from him, he says, it generally comes as a great surprise and shock to the ignorant and indifferent person to discover that Christianity was never meant to make the world a better place. The unbeliever, when he thinks of religion at all, is bound to view it through very earthly eyes, as did the Jews of old. He assumes that it is offering something which will benefit people in a way that they want to be helped. To be of any value, religion must be able to make their lives happier and more prosperous. Now, I think we would all understand that if people do follow the teachings of the Bible in general and the teachings of Jesus in particular, if people do that, the world would be a better place. There's no doubt about that. If people did not steal, the world would be a better place. If people didn't lie, the world would be a better place. If people followed the sexual ethics taught in the Word of God, if homes and governments operated according to God's blueprint, the world would be a better place. Christian ethics certainly make the world a better place. But, bottom paragraph, Christian is not just about living better with one another. Jesus didn't come to make people moral. Jesus came to deal with the underlying issue of sin and our estrangement from God. Yes, the Christian life is better on earth, but a Christian life is not restricted to earth. We are saved to enjoy fellowship with God in heaven for eternity. And unless a person comes to faith in Christ as their savior from sin, they will never make it to heaven and will remain in bondage to sin's power today and will ultimately be ruined under the judgment of God in hell for all eternity. Christianity is intended to reconcile us to God, who alone can deliver us from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and the presence of sin. Top page three. It comes as a surprise to people to be told that the Christian gospel has no plans to improve earthly society and make rebellious people happier. God has no intention of blessing and improving a world in a state of hostility to him, its creator. Now if we have opportunity to share this surprising statement with an unsaved person, that is is, Christianity was never intended to make the world a better place. It's quite possible that hearing that they'll begin to think and they might even ask the question, well, well what then is the purpose of Christianity? What is Jesus all about if he didn't come to make the world a better place? And at that point we can share the truth about man's spiritual plight and God's spiritual mission. Save us from our sin. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners like us from the penalty of sin, and the power of sin, and the presence of sin. And This is something that the person that we're talking to, it's to, to certainly needs. So there's one suggested statement or a variation on that this one, number two, Jesus did not envisage the world getting better and better. There's a lot of talk about the future. And people are gen- genuinely worried. They're worried about the economic situation, high inflation, high interest rates, rising cost of living, unaffordable housing. They worry about crime, they worry about wars and military conflicts, they worry about global warming, climate change, the future of the planet, fear on every side. And most people expect, there in your notes, most people expect that religion should offer hope for the future. Therefore, it's totally surprising for a person to hear from us that Jesus didn't envisage a, the world getting better and better. Next paragraph in your notes is from Peter Masters. He says... It always comes as a surprise to worldly people to discover that, as one preacher used to say in the early part of the century, Christ was the greatest pessimist ever about the fortunes and future of this world. It surprises people greatly to learn that our Lord Lord, had only a message of doom about the progress of mankind. The indifferent person usually imagines that Christianity is smilingly optimistic about the future of the world and society. When we tell such people that Christ predicted wars and rumours of wars up until the very last day, a puzzled frown appears and they often begin to listen. And so that might, uh, as a suggested question, might be uh, good for you to put in your arsenal. Here's another statement that surprises many people. Number three, the Bible does not teach that man is basically good. And this statement is a surprise to many. A couple of reasons. Number one, because popular theory in modern psychology, modern psychology says that humans are all basically good. I read one particular article that listed nine reasons why. Here they are. Number one, human beings are hardwired for friendship. Number two, We also are naturally empathetic. Some people, sometimes. Number three, kindness makes us feel happy. Number four, our first instinct is to act selfless. Number five, a human's ability to fall in love is biological. Number six, holding hands with someone alleviates fear. It depends whose hand it is. It might might make us very afraid. Number seven, our bodies physically change when we hug someone. Well, depending on who it is, could be a change for the worse. Number eight, human beings are programmed to recover from bad events. And number nine, the clincher. If all that doesn't convince you that there's a lot of good in human nature, Number nine, dogs are hardwired to love us. We must be doing something right as a species to receive that kind of unconditional love, which is quite incredible to read that because they're just saying that dogs love us unconditionally, like even when the worst of the worst. That's a good thing about a dog. It doesn't say anything about... Some dogs have got the worst owners, but they still love them. That's an incredible thing about a dog. So there's nothing about human goodness. But it's not just popular psychology that holds this point of view about the inherent goodness of man. Father Kevin Nyhoff, a Dominican priest, diocese of Grand Grand Rapids, says, Roman Catholic anthropology is assured that all human beings are basically good. and yet many people do disagree with that view they say that man is neither born good or evil but is heavily influenced by the people surrounding them and by the influence of society in other words people believe that man is neutral he is a blank he comes into this life as a blank slate and it is his environment impacting upon him that determines what kind of person he will become. And these are views that we're likely to encounter as we speak to people, and yet the Bible says otherwise. The Bible says that our sinful acts are not the result of negative external influences, they are the result of corrupt internal motives. Jesus taught, Matthew, Mark chapter 7, verse 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. The Bible teaches, yes, we were originally made in the image and likeness of God, but... Chapter 3, man fell into sin. Sin has consequently corrupted our nature, and every person's heart now is inherently sinful. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3:10. Isaiah 64, 6. We are all as an unclean thing. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. The clear teaching of Scripture is that all men without condition. Without respect for condition or class, all men are sinners before God. In our notes, there may be differences in the degree of sin, but not in the fact of sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men, Jew and Gentile, have missed the mark, failed to attain God's standard. Yet this is not the view of the average unsaved person. From Masters, he says, it frequently astonishes the non church goer to hear that true Christians do not believe that man is good at heart. For some reason, perhaps from being wrongly taught at school, people assume that Christians are optimistic about human nature. It rather shocks them to discover that we regard them as being naive about human nature and that we have the gloomiest possible view about the human heart and character. Man is depraved. Every part of his being is affected by sin. Mind, emotions, will, spirit, soul, body, all tainted by sin. And the average person is surprised to hear this. And in their surprise, there is there the opportunity, then for us the opportunity to explain the fact of the fall and how it's affected our human nature, our subsequent alienation from God, and yet God's wonderful plan to remedy the situation through the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. A fourth surprising statement, bottom of the page. Nobody gets to heaven by being good. Nobody gets to heaven by being good. The idea that many people have that is that if there is a heaven, then good people are the ones who will get there. However, we declare the opposite. We quote Titus three: five and six, "Not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to His mercy he saved us, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because many Christians sorry, many people believe that Christians are holier than thou that we have this hole in our attitude, it comes as a surprise to them to learn that we don't believe in getting to heaven by our works. In fact, we readily confess that we are not righteous people, but people who, by the grace of God, have come to discover that we are wretched sinners, totally dependent on the grace and the mercy of God to get us to heaven. We understand Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now that may not come as good news to someone who is a self-righteous person, who thinks that their good works will certainly get them to heaven. We're going to talk about that next week. But to the person who knows that they are a guilty sinner, the news that we don't get to heaven by being good is surprising to them and no doubt would arouse their interest because there then is hope for people like them because forgiveness is possible. Forgiveness is possible, Ephesians 1.7, good verse to memorise. And while earned righteousness is not attainable, imputed righteousness is available. Second Corinthians 5.21, key verse in evangelism. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Forgiveness is possible to the blotting out of our sins. Imputed righteousness is available. All of our sin goes to Jesus. He takes it away. All of his righteousness comes to us as a free gift. There's great hope for the person who knows that they're a sinner and know that they're not good enough. No one gets to heaven by being good enough. We get to heaven because Jesus is good enough. <clears throat> Number five, there is punishment beyond this life in the eternal fires of hell. The fact that we believe in a future gut judgment and eternal punishment in hell is also something which would shock many people. As a nation, we've been steadily moving, moving moving further and further and further away from the absolutes of God's word. And correspondingly, as a society, we've been moving further and further and further away from the belief in the reality of hell. Very few people believe in hell anymore. But the Bible says a lot about it, mostly in the words of Jesus himself. The Bible sometimes uses the word hell for the grave or the place of the dead. The common meaning is the eternal punishment of those who reject God and his grace. Jesus portrayed it as darkness where there should be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, and a place of everlasting fire and everlasting punishment, Matthew 25, 41 and 46. The descriptions of hell are graphic darkness, weeping, fire, punishment, but perhaps the worst part about it is that hell is forever. John the Baptist called it unquenchable fire, Matthew 3. Jesus referred to it as everlasting in Matthew 25 described it as fire that shall not be quenched, Mark chapter 9. In addition to all the implied physical agony In the account of the rich man and Lazarus, Luke chapter 16, Jesus taught us that hell's occupants experience unrelenting guilt and regret. They know that they have rejected God's offer of mercy in Christ, resulting in separation from him and everything that is holy and good and beautiful. The rich man in hell cried out, I'm tormented in this frame, in this flame, but he never said this is not fair. He never said this is not fair. God is completely just. He honours people's rejection of his grace and he gives them what they want. That is his absence. If people want to live their life without God, then they choose to live without him for eternity. Their choice. God is just. Some people believe in universalism, okay? It's out there, you might encounter it. It's the idea that everyone will eventually be saved. But Jesus' words are unmistakable. Matthew twenty five, forty six These shall go away into everlasting punishment. The righteous, those who have been imputed righteousness into life eternal. Some people will point to the incomparable grace of God to suggest that there must be second chances of which we are otherwise unaware. But No second chance after death is implied in Scripture. On the contrary, Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto men once to die. After this, the judgment. Some people believe in universalism. Other people propose annihilationism. That is the belief that the wicked are annihilated immediately at death, ex- exterminated, or they, uh, they have uh, some temporary punishment and then are annihilated, then they seek to ex- cease to exist. You may encounter that, but the Bible's many references to hell argue against that view. But isn't God supposed to be a God of love? Okay? Get ready for it, you'll hear that. That's the question that the <clears throat> surprise or maybe even the antagonistic unbelievable asks. But at least if they're asking that question, you, you know that they're paying attention, you know they're engaged in the topic, you know they're listening. And with their interest aroused, we can share that God, yes, yes, God is a God of love and that's why he gave us Jesus. God is a God of love, that's why he gave us Jesus, so that we can be saved from hell. But if we reject Jesus, if we reject the love of God, God is also a God of holiness. He cannot allow sin in his presence. God is also a God of justice who must punish sin. Peter Master says, and why should, it should not be I, it should be a, a holy and infinitely wise God allow sin to pollute his eternal heaven. Earth is bad enough with human selfishness, lies, greed and violence. And a wise God would never permit heaven to be corrupted. Not sin, sin. Sin must be punished. For God's holiness, his justice and wisdom all demand it. There are certain things God cannot do. He cannot fail, he cannot sin, he cannot be unjust. Only to the curious mind can these truths be effectively explained. One more, <clears throat> number six, surprising statement. God doesn't listen to the prayers of most people. That statement I think will stun the average non-Christian and it, requi- it definitely requires explanation which many people perhaps would want to hear. Why would you say such a thing? Well, the explanation is found in just one place we can go. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. His ear isn't heavy that it cannot hear. It's not deaf that he cannot hear. It's our iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Sin is the barrier. Now, God will certainly hear the prayer of someone who calls upon him for salvation. Acts ten thirteen. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I also believe that God will answer the prayer of someone who is seeking salvation, desirous to know, Lord, where are you? How how can I be saved? What's the way to fellowship with you? How can my sins be forgiven? Someone who's praying that, I think God, God hears that prayer. A couple of examples why I say that. Number one, the example of Cornelius, Acts chapter ten, verse one and two. There's a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, one that feared God with all his house which gave much arms to the people and prayed to God always. Religious, devout, no knowledge of Christ. No knowledge of Christ. He's a man who wants to know God and he's praying always. And in response to this seeking, searching hard, God sends a, an evangelist called Peter. Comes knocking on his door. Share the gospel. We also see this in the teaching of Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen. You shall seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. When someone's seeking the Lord and praying to the Lord, praying to the Lord where they might find him, where they might know him, God answers that prayer. Now a statement like this, that God doesn't hear the prayers of most people, a statement like this can open up the opportunity to explain to people that God's chief purpose is not to support and bless people in their godless lives, but to save their souls. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, there's six surprising statements, maybe not surprising to us, but surprising to the average unsaved person. And These are statements that we might use with people who are hard and indifferent to the things of God. Start witnessing to them and we just get... Shut down straight away, um, but it may be that the Lord would help us to uh, direct the conversation, to uh, to to say some things that cause people ears to to listen to what we say, and would generate a response, questions in their heart. Maybe 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 you can think of other questions or other statements um, that would uh, have the same effect. Uh, but I think it's a good thing for us to to probably build up a bit of an arsenal. Um, so that uh, that uh, you know, like like memorizing scripture. If we memorize um, certain questions or statements, that in the in the spirit of the moment, the spirit of God might bring them to our remembrance, and uh, and help us to advance conversations uh, with hard-hearted people. The gospel is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believes. All right. Well, let's let's conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the um, example of the Lord Jesus. Uh, Thank you uh, for um, uh, his love for souls um, and uh, his willingness to go out of his way. Uh, We think particularly of the woman of Samaria went out of his way, a long way, uh, to uh, speak uh, the truth of the gospel to her. And thank you for the way that he went about speaking to people. Uh, whether it was private conversations, one-on-one conversations, or even speaking to his disciples and uh, large groups of people. Uh, Thank you for the way that that we can see uh, how he was able to grab people's attention and then uh, pursue uh, conversation or speaking truth into their life with their their interests now engaged. And uh, Lord, I pray that you might help us um, as we uh, develop our gifts and as we uh, get better, uh, we seek to improve in ways whereby we might uh, uh, faithfully fulfil the responsibilities that you've given to us. Uh, Lord, we, we know that you're uh, not limited to our, um, what is often just feeble efforts. Um, often we come away from conversations or wishing we had said something else or thinking we've said the wrong thing or wondering if uh, we said anything uh, significant at all. We thank you that you're not limited uh, to uh, us. You're able to, to take even our meager words, our weak words, and uh, to use them and bless them uh, in the lives of others. There's, there's no, um, there's no um, re- reducing um, what uh, the great things that God can do simply by virtue of our weakness and frailty. And yet it's also true, um, Lord, that uh, you bless uh, our endeavours as we develop certain skills and uh, gain experience in all of these things. And so, uh, Lord, help us to be good stewards, uh, not just to be content uh, to be and continue where we're at, uh, but to seek to grow and to develop and uh, to uh, improve uh, the uh, the ways we engage uh, with others. Uh, Lord, I pray that uh, we'd all uh, be on the same page in this regard, all desiring uh, to learn and grow. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you might uh, give us encouragement and give us uh, fruit for our labours. Uh, We ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.